Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. All right, gentlemen. So uh, you always, you know, hate to uh, see something die. And, uh, you know, it's never good to talk about another person's job. Uh, but I think that at this point, we, you know, have to acknowledge the the sadness that comes with learning that Internet institution Jezebel is uh, is going the way of the dodo. Uh, personally, I have to say that, you know, it was a, a, a publication uh, that, uh, gave me much delight in at certain points in his history, uh, including my favorite uh, headline of all time from Jezebel. Is the UVA rape story a gigantic hoax? Asks idiot about um, our friend Robbie Suave uh, at Reason Magazine for questioning uh, the uh, the Rolling Stone article uh, on its accuracy. Um, the best thing about this is this story, which you can still find on their website, uh, now has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Uh, it looks like nine updates, uh, including uh, multiple corrections at the end, uh, because obviously it turned out not to be idiotic to question the UVA rape story. This is the thing, though, that I, I do want to point out. The Gawker diaspora of journalists who came out of this kind of hell pit of different publications uh, that are now known you know, mostly for uh, the the kind of ways that they went after uh, individuals in deeply personal, uh, you know, a manner, uh, oftentimes for uh, nothing more than just happening to be in the wrong place at the wrong time or having some, you know, early internet video go viral of them doing something embarrassing. Uh, it, it just had this sort of mean-spirited quality uh, that I think is emblematic still and just beneath the surface of the writing of of a lot of Gawker alums. Uh, Dan, I, I don't know if you have thoughts on this, uh, John, uh, but yeah. and I'm sure you do. Well, I think I think your initial caveat is well, well put uh, that it's never good. I, 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 I'm really uncomfortable about about, you know, uh, celebrating people losing their jobs. I was going to make a joke that the lesson here is that feminism is incorrect, as I've always said. But um, but. In seriousness, I mean, I don't root for people to lose their jobs, but your point about um, your point about the kind of gawker mean lib kind of thing, it, you know, me, mean liberals were have always been a, a a thing, but they were never the sort of main attraction or the main rhetorical weapon of the left. Um, it was a different kind of moral suasion that that the left relied on in the even in the kind of you know militant occupy the um, the university president's office era of the late sixties and seventies, there was still you know the dominant mode of kind of left wing discourse was still appealing to your better angels and um, you know your 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 moral sensibility and not the kind of um, barbed mockery that comes from i think i mean this is a much longer conversation but like comes from the you know the sort of shift in the sense of the left from their back foot to their front that they were ascendant that they had won all sorts of important social and civil rights battles that you know there was a kind of end of history for the left-right debates on various topics and that they were triumphant and there was a kind of um smugness that came with that and a kind of uh, permissiveness and a permission structure, a term that's overused, but is apt here, a permission structure on the left to um, forego any attempts at persuasion um, because it was so obvious to all right thinking people what the correct answer was that you could proceed directly to um, just sort of naming and shaming and, and mocking your opponents. And certainly I've written a lot of mocking stuff over the years and I've enjoyed that mode of discourse um as much as as the next guy but 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 the the gawker diaspora as you put it 
uh, were kind of masters of it. And it's all they did. I mean, it's really all they did. Um, and, you know, anything that's, you know, built on that much sort of bile and vitriol, I think, has a, an expiration date. It's a kind of it's the kind of thing that works in a period of um, frenzy or mob mentality or, um, you know, a brief interregnums in history. But it's not the kind of thing that can be sustained over years and decades as part of a like longer cultural conversation. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense, um, you know, that 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 you know, the, the archest version of it would peter out. But then here's a much more cynical take um, that that's not what happened. But instead, Gawk, you know, everybody is Gawker now. Right. Because mm -hmm. Twitter, you know, became it's true that there aren't kind of a handful of dominant blogs like that that are just I mean, Deadspin, you go you go down the list that are um, sort of defining our cultural conversations and doing so in this kind of maximalist, brutalist way. But on the other hand, it's just every Joe Blow with a with a Twitter handle has adopted to some extent that mode of discourse and persuasion as a way of talking in political journalism is pretty much dead. So, um, you know, they they you know, they lost in the sense of their business model, but they probably won in the sense of how political conversations happen in the discourse. Uh, Ryan Holiday's book, uh, Conspiracy. Uh, which is uh, just an excellent uh, read uh, about the downfall of, of Gawker and everything that led up to it. And it has both interviews with uh, Peter Thiel and uh, with Nick Denton and details the feud that goes on there. I just think it's it's a fascinating uh, book and uh, and everyone should read it. But th the thing that just really sticks out to me is that the tone of journalism that they created is one thing when you're young and brash and stupid and just making fun of everything and you know uh doing things like i don't know uh, you know mocking sarah palin's children and and stuff like that because you don't know any better but the thing that really sticks out to me now is the the people who did that they're all 50 now <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's it's really it's really sad or they're even older and it's like okay, this is the tone you should have when you're fresh out of college and you're getting paid, you know, absolutely nothing. And you're just trying to come up with the snarkiest comment or joke about something that is in the mainstream. But not only are these people in the mainstream and have been published by all these different other, you know, publications and have had, you know, books that show up on the New York Times list and that kind of thing. It's like, you're still doing the same shtick when you're 50 that's just pathetic, man. It's like it, remi it, rem it, it reminds me of. Uh, I think this is unfair to Guy Fieri. Okay, that's that's my preamble to the anecdote I'm about to tell. But it reminds me of something Anthony Bourdain said, which is, you know, he was a hater of Guy Fieri, and he said in a podcast somewhere, in an interview somewhere, like, "How do you dedouche if you're Guy Fieri? Like, if you decide one day that you're going to get rid of the highlights and the bling." And the loud T-shirts and the backward, you know, and the Oakleys on the back of your head. Like, do you do that every morning? Do you take off one gold pinky ring? Do you, <laughs> do you, do you let your 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 bleach blonde hair grow out? Do you dye it back to your natural color? Like, do you do it in steps or do you, all, all at once? Do you show up in a in a in a uh, zip up fleece, you know, with <laughs> without your you know your trademark goatee so it's yeah. like those guys you know it's like you know watching aging hipsters kind of navigate that um is always very delicate like <laughs> how long are you committed to the t-shirt that no longer fits you i i was forged in this spicy habanero mango infused volcano <laughs> <laughs> once you once you emerge from that you cannot you cannot go back <laughs> john do you have any thoughts uh on r.i.p ip jezebel <sighs> I'm not a nerd like Dan, so I will be uh, more succinct. I'm glad they're gone. I don't feel bad for them. They ruined a lot of lives in the Gawker network. So yeah. I, I think Dan is right that the the kind of journalism and let's not forget Nick Denton was 37. He wasn't a kid when he founded Gawker and you know sort of their hell spawn. Mm -hmm. um, you know, maybe you know, it was inevitable that journalism or what we call journalism today uh, was was going to end up going in this direction anyways, but I think that it's, it's, you know, led to, you know, a society with more unnecessary conflict and more meanness and for no purpose other than like literal just clicks. Um, so I don't feel bad and those people can learn the code. 
and because that's what they would tell anyone who didn't agree with them. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I, I mean, I agree entirely. <laughs> you know, it's, it's just, uh, it is to me something that I think people will look back on in the future. And because these things kind of repeat themselves, someone will try to do this model again. But it seemed to have uh, just, a, you know, by virtue of being the first to really do this, it had a level of meanness and a level of animosity uh, that, you know, went from being, yeah, you know, uh, we, we hate that person to wow i think you're really going too far to now we have you know a bestseller from britney spears that's basically you know the, the equivalent of like how all of this different all of these different factors ruined her life you know and it's it's one of these things that i think is uh is going to play out uh in the form of you know early millennial nostalgia uh in future years about wow yeah we we were really wrong to think those guys were funny and cool at any point uh so gentlemen this is thunderdome and we have plenty to talk about I'd like to uh, begin by just saying, I think that the more serious conversation uh, is about the election results that we saw this week. Uh, so because of that, I think we should start with the debate um, because there's kind of less to say about it, even though it, you know, it overlaps a bit. Uh, but I think let's start with that just because it's it's more recent in our heads and, and we can talk through that and then have maybe a more serious conversation about lessons from, from uh, Tuesday's results. You know, th this debate obviously was one that was kind of formatted differently than the others. Uh, one that allowed uh, people to step forward and say certain things, but did not allow them to respond, uh, you know, if just based on whether they were mentioned or alluded to uh, in the different things that other candidates were saying. That's a format choice that was interesting to me. Uh, and I'm curious as to what you thought of it, because, you know, from my perspective, it made for something that resembled more of a Sunday panel or something like that. Uh, as opposed to what we've been used to in the fractiousness of of some of these debates that have played out. But it also lent itself more to longer answers and to being aware of uh, the person who's standing up there who doesn't really have a talking point that goes beyond 30 seconds on a, on a particular issue. I thought it was yeah, a good format. Go ahead, John. I, I yeah, we, I agree. I, I, I think that we were able to hear more and more at length. And I think this, the stage shrinking obviously helped a lot to go from what, eight candidates down to five. Um, and I think Tim Scott was a fairly late addition. If, if memory serves, I think when I looked the other day, he had not qualified, uh, but being able to have reasonably equal distribution of time, uh, they're all with the exception of nine 11 truther, Vivek Ramaswamy, they're all serious people up on that stage, whether you like them or not. Uh, you know, I, I do think, and I appreciate it. And again, I will admit this is you know, sort of a, you know, Chris Christie stand, uh, during one of Hugh Hewitt's questions, unnecessarily detailed questions, I might add, about sort of, um, you know, naval shipbuilding and all that kind of stuff that the, the, the candidates were, as one does, falling back to just banal talking points about whatever. And uh, Christie, and Christie, I thought was actually more interesting in this debate because he sort of pivoted away from, you know, sort of the Trump sucks stuff to almost kind of running as himself to win. And you know, he he made the point that no one was really answering Hewitt's question and then actually went on to answer the question, uh, which I thought was was kind of interesting. But look, I thought, you know, Lester Holt and, you know, Kristen Welker and Hugh Hewitt did a, did a good job. Uh, it was nice not to have people just yelling over each other over just really weird, fine haired slicing of who did what to when and whom and all that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, we still had our um, our fun moment where Nikki Haley probably justifiably referred to, you know, Vivek Ramis, Ramaswamy as scum for. Yeah. Uh, I want to, let's, let's save that and loop, and loop back to it. But I, I would just, just a one distinction. I think the one thing that they seem to be yelling at each other about the most was like who invited the most Chinese funding, um, which it, it just seems it, it was a little odd. Like it, I mean, obviously your role as governor is to sort of try to get business. And I think a lot of, you know, things that uh, were fine and maybe the mid to uh, late two thousands, early 2010s are now not fine. Uh, but it just was interesting to me. That was the one area where they seemed to interrupt each other a bit. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I, so, yeah. And I, you know, I think, and part of the broader trend was that, you know, we asked in recent weeks whether the, the campaign was going to pivot, you know, to center around foreign policy issues. I think this debate proved that out to an extent. I mean, the whole first hour, hour was pretty much 
foreign policy um, and 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 fairly substantive as as far as these things go. I, I endorse basically everything John said. Don't have too much to add to it. The eight to five is a big jump. I think you know um, from a from a chance to win perspective, um, you know you could do without a couple of the of the five remainers for sure. From a kind of representing the different strains in the GOP coalition perspective, you could kind of choose between a Christie and a Haley, have a Ramaswamy as the Trump proxy uh, and the kind of online right proxy, um, and then have obviously DeSantis there and, 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 and certainly I think do away with, with, with Tim Scott. So there's, there's still yeah. more winnowing. You know, yeah, I mean, could, I think, I think the, so, so the, the, Two things, a couple of things about this. Uh, I agree with you completely. Um, I do feel like some of the answers, uh, especially no offense from Tim Scott, uh, were reminding me of of Bart Simpson's report about Libya, um, it, which has numerous exports, including uh, corn, or as the Indians call it, maize. <laughs> the uh, the thing that I think was was very apparent about this uh, is that you do, I think, have the representative kind of sample there on stage. Um, and it was also apparent to me that Mike Pence has been sucking up a lot more time than I maybe thought he was um, because his absence from the stage uh, just, it seemed like gave us a lot more time and gave people a lot more time to talk. Everybody was getting pretty hoarse by the end of the debate, uh, which I think is an indication of that. The I want to loop back to the, the incident that you mentioned there, John, about uh, Vivek bringing up Nikki Haley's uh, daughter, who is not a young daughter, she's twenty five. Uh, but uh, you know, the point is, she's not some some fourteen year old or something uh, having a TikTok account. Now, personally, I, I think that that comes across as low, uh, but and lends itself to the response that Nikki Haley gave. Uh, but I also think that Ramaswamy and kind of his is I just want to get under everybody's skin approach. I wonder what he's actually trying to do at this point, and I think that I have the answer. Gentlemen, I think that Vivek Ramaswamy is the first person to run for president as an act of podcast promotion. It makes total sense. Like, it, it, I know that he was trying to launch a podcast with the Daily Wire, like, all the way up until when he announced he was running for president, and... You know, he has launched a podcast with his campaign. He interviewed Alex Jones recently, obviously, you know, a titan of the media landscape uh, and someone who, you know, certainly I think Vivek uh, has probably learned a lot of things from. Uh, but it just seems to me that, you know, this talk about, you know, a publicity uh, a bit of, of genius. I have a podcast. The podcast landscape is very full. Uh, how am I get them to get going to get people to know my name uh, and and search for, for my podcast and subscribe to it? develop a big campaign list, blast it out there. And before you know it, you know, you're in the, I don't know, top 50 or so uh, on Spotify. I just think that that is, you know, first off, a certain kind of evil genius to it. Um, but, but it's definitely the thing that I think he's trying to do at this point, because all he's really done is make a lot of people hate him who liked him before or didn't have an opinion about him or thought he was just fine. Uh, and now really, really dislike his presence and his attitude. Yeah, so I actually, I, I have thoughts on that. So I, my my view on Ramaswamy has evolved a little bit. And it's one, there's, there's a few things that the last two debates, and especially this one, have proven me wrong on. Maybe we'll get to the second one. But I, I think I should do a mea culpa um, on a couple of them. One is, I actually don't know if Ramaswamy, I, I said from the start, he's running as a, as a brand building exercise. I think he's hustling a little bit too much and working a little too hard. I, don't get me wrong. I, I really dislike the guy. Obvious. This should be obvious. But I think he's hustling a little bit too much and working a little too hard and reacting to incentives and numbers and polling a little bit too much for that to be the clean pat explanation. And my theory is more like, and, you know, I, I think I just disagree, I, I guess, is where I'm coming down. on. But my theory is more like, there's a kind of in my in my day job, and, and certainly people will be aware of this type. There's a kind of founder, VC bro, tech bro, startup bro kind of guy, whose main superpower is their delusion, right? And they it, there's like there's like on the good side of that line, you have um, on one hand you have someone like Steve Jobs, 
And on the far side of it, you have like, you know, Bankman Freed or the Theranos gal or any or, you know, any number of other um, founders and tech start, you know, like the pharma bros who've gone to prison for it. But but they're on on either side of a very narrow razor's edge of like fake it till you make it right. And a kind of operationalized weaponized delusion that ends up being a power because you believe in the future that you are going to build and, and manifest. You see the same kind of thinking in the kind of hustle culture that has evolved on social media in the last 10 years where people talk about their mindset and manifesting and waking up in the morning and thinking about money and all of that kind of junk. And there's a lot of crap in that world, but there's also a lot of people who have turned that into very lucrative careers. And so the way I see Ramaswamy operating again, just in the way he's hustling and responding to incentives and seems to make a number of decisions based on trying to capture market share and what he considers gettable voters, trying to capture vote share in his in his base and his core. You know, I think he might just be delusional. And, and you know, it's, it, you know, probably more on the Liz Holmes, the Theranos side than, you know, than the Steve Jobs side um, on the Bankman Freed side than the Steve Jobs side. But, you know, I'm, I, I've watched him go and I think he in some weird way believes that he can will himself and manifest himself to the nomination. Now, that doesn't mean that he he's not perfectly willing to take as a consolation prize the building of his brand and he'll come and take another crack at it, just like a lot of serial entrepreneurs fail and fail and fail and fail. And then on their 10th company, they, you know, have a big hit. You know, the, the, there, there are models for this kind of thinking, too, where you're like you're trying to be a you're trying to be a baron, a robber baron, and you end up being a media personality. I mean, the most obvious case is Donald Trump, who in the in the 15 years before he became president of the United States, evolved from a player in the real estate markets um, who also had a, a public persona to a guy who was essentially a celebrity um, and who used his celebrity to lever business deals. And I think, you know, the Shark Tank guys are the same kind of model. And in his own way, that might be what Ramaswamy is going for here, or at least what he's willing to take. I think I think he's more deluded about his chances for the nomination than I gave him credit for. Um, I think he believes in some sense that he can win. And I think he's just going to be happy to take the brand building and file away the political capital and the reputational capital, such as it is, uh -huh. uh, for the next time and and, and launch his podcast. I, I personally would have preferred if he had gone the Shark Tank first route, uh, certainly this time around. <laughs> uh, but but uh, John, I want to get your feedback on this. But uh, I also just want to add the element of, do you think that Nikki's comment calling him scum which I think probably was applauded by a lot of people because everybody, I think anybody who supports anyone else on stage would agree with it. Uh, do you think that that was a smart thing for her to do? Just given that, you know, in terms of the way that this debate sticks in people's minds, um, it, it does hurt, I think, a little bit of her gravitas in the same way that that kind of high heel comment uh, that was going around uh, from her, uh, campaign i think was just like a little it, it didn't really make sense as if she was gonna like uh, fire fire a high heel across the stage at vivek's head or something like that yeah that one didn't really make much sense to me either like i think i kind of more or less got what she was trying to do there but it didn't quite land i i still believe that authenticity is really important in politics but i think in a really deeply inauthentic age um what what i would like to see and, you know, I think in some ways, even even though that I think there are parts of his life that aren't super authentic, you know, the way a guy like, you know, John Fetterman kind of interacts with the world is is at least feels more real that it's, you know, talks the way that normal people talk. Um, scum feels a little muted to me. I feel like jackass would have landed a little bit better. Um, but I, I just I think, yeah, yeah I mean, his her. You know, Haley's daughter is a is a grown up, but um, so in one level, right? It's she's you know not Nikki Haley's to tell what to do or not do in that sense, but in the other, you know, she's not a public figure. Uh, you know, for anyone who didn't like it when people were going after, you know, what was happening with um, I'm blanking on the name of uh, the Trump advisor, um, um, Miller. Those no, the the, the pollster. Kellyanne. Yeah. 
the, the people yeah. are going after sort of the, the the Kellyanne Conway family stuff, which again I thought was also really gross when people were making an issue of well, that. But that was different. I mean, she was a teenager at the time. Sure, yeah. but I mean, she's she's not she's not germane to. The she's a civilian. No, yeah. she's a civilian. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. It, it falls it falls into you know, completely unprincipled people like Taylor Lorenz to do things like that. So yeah. Yeah, so I, I think that he was going after a civilian who, again, is not a a minor in the sense of like, hey, you know, eat your vegetables. Like, you know, she's she's a grown up, and you know, parents are allowed to disagree with their children about things. Um, so I, you know, I, I thought that Haley's response to me—I mean, he could tell she was aggravated. Um, I, I think she probably held it together better than I would have in that instance. But yeah, I, I think that the answer could be a why not both. I think that he is probably trying to build build the brand, but may also believe his own bullshit at this point because i'm a believer that if you keep saying something long enough do you actually start to become what you're pretending to be and i think there's an element of that with ramaswamy and it could also be he's run for president in 2028 and he's just starting now you know and is going through the debates i mean we're, we're talking about a guy who at 37 has already had sort of two kind of you know books that were just sort of you know meant to sell right you know of of kind of making you know making a market on sort of uh, anti-woke stuff, which is you know, fine so far as it goes, and you probably agree more than I don't with it, but um, I, I just have never really understood the rationale for a guy who hasn't, like, really done much, you know, that he's, you know, he's basically a Martin Shkreli that stayed on the right side of the law. It's kind of like how it feels. Um, you know, never... So far. Never, so, so far, yeah. But I mean, you know, is, like, what's he done big, and what's he done that's managed a lot of people, and you know, whereas he had to build coalitions. And I, I think that that's when you look at the, you know, the case that, which is why I've always thought, you know, pre the, the Giuliani that we know now, sort of the 9-11 era, Rudy Giuliani or a guy like Mitch Daniels, there's a different, there's a different skill set to leading in a public institution where you can't just fire people that disagree with you. And I think, every, you know, and we saw this, you know, sort of thing with Mitt Romney, oh, like run it like a business or, you know, certainly Trump did the same thing. And we see, you know, the, you know, the administrations just run roughshod over those kind of guys. The the people that do it well, you know, I think it's just a different skill set. Um, and I just I just don't understand the Ramaswamy thing. And I don't understand why, unless it's just a stand in for like who if you like him, why aren't you just voting for Trump? Like, why do you want Diet Coke when like real Coke is out there? I, I just I don't get it. I'm never going to get it. Um, I, I think the bottom line is that the scum comment didn't hurt either of those people with their core constituencies. Yeah. I think of the two, I think of the two. So they, they, it'd be interesting to see the polling because on the one hand, everyone pointed this out completely unoriginal, but, but, but Ramaswamy's arc was like the arc of a trilogy movie where he comes out and he does the thing. The second movie is about doing a different thing. You take a left-hand turn you you uh, confound audience expectations the third movie is about going back to the thing in the first movie twice as hard right <laughs> and you know that's the kind of return of the jedi model and that's and or matrix revolutions or take your pick and ramaswamy did that right he he was a he was a d-bag in the first debate he read the polls he pivoted away from being a d-bag in the second debate somebody asked him what his goal was in the third debate his answer was literally to be unhinged that was his <laughs> verbatim answer, right? So I think he succeeded on, in, in his own right. He, so that's going to – that I, I think he understands where his votes are such as they are. It's probably not going to hurt him that Haley called him scum. Haley's got a little bit of a more difficult path to walk. Because I can't remember who said this. It might have been Mary Catherine Hammond. It might have been someone else. I'm like only 50-50 on that. But somebody said, you know, the extent to which Haley is going to be successful in a large part depends on, like, whether the mood of the country right now is looking for a girl boss, like a tough mm. – a tough broad, you know, for, for lack of a better term. And Haley has a fine line to walk because there just are gendered expectations about commanders and chiefs. There just is a kind of soft sexism at play. It's not de determinative. We saw Hillary Clinton. We saw Sarah Palin. Like, we know that there's certainly room for um, uh, presidential candidates and, and presidents to be women, but it doesn't mean that there isn't still a little bit of a tightrope for women to walk. I think that's just true. And so, Haley, when she says stuff like that, or when she makes the high heel comment, she is potentially running into a much trickier obstacle course because she's a woman. Mm -hmm. And that's just the reality of people sort of latent expectations and gendered, you know, stereotypes. So, but, uh, but I, I'm not sure that's dispositive. I think it's probably marginal. And I think they both probably did fine with their core voters. I think that 
uh, you know, you have an interesting point there about Haley. One thing more before we move on from uh, Vivek, uh, he falsely claimed that he is the youngest person to run for the Republican nomination for president. That would be one Thomas Dewey. Uh, who uh, was uh, almost a full year younger than Vivek when he was uh, running the first time. Uh, and uh, Thomas Dewey, great American uh, and a very handsome man with a handsome mustache. Um, the uh, the DeSantis factor. I think that the DeSantis versus Haley conversation regarding foreign policy was the most interesting aspect of the night to me. DeSantis's positions on foreign policy are really not that far away, at least from what publicly Joe Biden is saying. Now, it's it's quite far away, I think, from what the administration is doing, um, which is always you know an open question about whether Joe Biden is aware of what they're doing. Um, I don't know if you've seen this, but today, this morning, he finally responded to a question from Peter Ducey for the first time in a long time uh, about his poll numbers. Uh, and he said that uh, Ducey wasn't paying attention to the polls uh, and that he's leading in most of them, uh, and that uh, he should check out real polls from places like CNN and the New York Times, <laughs> which which suggests that no one has told Joe Biden about the polls from last weekend. So uh, that's uh, you know, uh, does does so, no? In fairness, Ben, stripped of context, that also feels like something Donald Trump would say. Well, but see, see, Trump. I think the Trump thing that trump would say would say i i'm leading in all the polls except for the fake news new york times like that's that's the trump line uh the the biden line is all the non-rigged polls i'm leading in i'm leading in eight out of ten polls uh you got uh you know you got you got to look at the good polls from cnn and the new york times (laughs) it's like well wait a minute (laughs) what one of those is the reason everybody's freaked out at you so um I think he just reverts to his default, which is assuming that they're correct. Um, yeah. And Trump, of course, revert, reverts to his default, uh, which is assuming that they're rigged. So um, the the thing that is interesting to me about that dynamic, though, is that so you know, uh, DeSantis says no boots on the ground in Ukraine, you know, that when we're supporting Israel, we're going to do it, you know, in a responsible way. And we don't get it. In other words, but meanwhile, Nikki Haley, it sounds full war hawk. Uh, return of the return of the neocon kind of uh, agenda in terms of the way that uh, her attitude plays out. And I think there are two facets there. One is, I don't think Americans mind hearing things like we need to have a massively bigger Navy. Um, I don't think that they mind that at all. Republican voters, primary voters certainly do not mind that. Uh, And they assume that our Navy is decrepit and falling apart. Uh, which is a correct assumption, frankly. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, you met, you mentioned Hugh's overly detailed question. Hugh is always going to be overly detailed when it comes to things like ships, okay? He's the definition of the guy, uh, and no offense to, to Hugh, I'm on his program once a week, uh, was was on this morning, in fact, with Morgan Ortegas. Uh, and uh, he, I always think of him in that progressive commercial about turning into your parents where where the guy <laughs> says uh who else do you know who likes to read books about submarines <laughs> so, yeah. so so the point is being of course he's going to be overly detailed but i actually think you know to the extent that he was in the room and i'm sure that he was some of the questions that they had from lester holt and from Kristen welker were far more detailed or or written in a way that i thought indicated conservative influence um you know so whether it was hugh or whether it was somebody on their staff they they had better questions i think in terms of the you know compare them for instance to the univision horrible univision person uh who was in the last debate uh whose questions all had a leftist framing these questions i see i felt were framed more from a a right influence perspective Uh, but getting back to that desantis kind of haley dynamic on the foreign policy question do you think either of them particularly helped themselves is certainly I, I think that more hawkish people would probably be cheering for for Haley um but you know I felt like DeSantis especially when he's telling the story about the the airplanes to Israel that's a really really strong moment for him yeah so so I I think I think you're pointing out that DeSantis sounded like Biden is really interesting because I had a similar but differently sw- switch out the names thought you know recently which is which is that People have been passing around. I know we they are not friends of the program, but people have been passing around Hillary on 
The View talking about giving a 10 minute summation of Hamas, yes. Israel, Palestine and what policy should be there. And um, it's great. <laughs> it's great. And the, and and it, and it got me to thinking and my view, and I, I know this is in a foreign policy podcast. Yeah, basically, Hillary you know, is great. That's what I'm, I'm just, uh, just going to yeah. take that little. Sorry, let, just, <laughs> let, let me tweak it. Killery. Killery is great, not Hillary. When you want something, if you want something killed, associate it with Hillary Clinton. <laughs> <laughs> well, so this is what I was going to say, though, is that I know it's not a foreign policy podcast, but in the spirit of DeSantis sounding like Biden, you know, Democrats, liberal interventionists, they call it. In, in the biz spent a lot of the 90s and early 2000s talking about smart power and they were kind of hawks light and it was America's unipolar moment and they realized that we had this post-Cold War hegemony and there was opportunity to get their sort of liberal values inserted in different places around the globe and sometimes that meant you know lobbing a cruise missile at a at a bunker and they were much more comfortable with the kinetic stuff and they were also much more comfortable asserting the supremacy of liberal values. Now, you know, I thought at the time that they didn't go far enough. My views have evolved as well. But what's the weird thing that's happened is that the world has moved in a direction where their preferences actually make more sense. In other words, America is no longer a unipolar hegemon. We no longer have the overwhelming military advantage on every other country in the world combined. We can no longer fight a war on two and a half fronts. Um, there's a lots of you know, challenges that have, have have risen. And that is actually an argument for something more like a restrained, balanced, smart power kind of foreign policy where you're not an isolationist and you're not an apologist for America, but you are also strategic and self-interested about where you project power, how you do it. And, um, and that's what DeSantis sounds like to me. And that's what Hillary was kind of advocating 20 years ago, she just made the mistake of not catching up to the left wing of her own party in moving away from that view. So, you know, we don't have to go too far down that rabbit hole, but I, I thought that was really interesting. And then, mm. you know, you know, Haley, so there's kind of a, a meta and an object level. Object level, I'm closer to DeSantis. Meta level, which is to say, like, directionally, I like that Haley exists and I like that she's such a hawk because I think generally that right-wing foreign policy needs to move in her direction. I don't think it needs to go as far as she goes, but I'm kind of rooting for her uh, like the ballast on a tug-of-war team to pull the center to move the Overton window on the right back in a more, you know, a pro-America power projection direction. But in terms of where they actually are now today, if they had to be president tomorrow, um, I, I like where DeSantis is. I think he's where the center of the party is. And um, or closer to the, where the center of the party is, um, and I think it probably helps him at the margins. Yeah, but but to what do you agree? Do you think that sort of the Republican, the larger Republican foreign policy debate, such as it is, that's going on right now, is kind of a straw man? Like who who's actually been talking about putting boots on the ground in Ukraine? I mean, I feel like it's you know it's it's this kind of like this debate that's not really happening. Um, I thought the one person that in, in foreign policy and that actually did a good. So I'm going to take this in a in a related but somewhat different direction. The the question about what you would tell Netanyahu, like the the this like thing with politicians feeling the show, like hey, I mean, I told I tell BB this, like I I mean, like what what what's that showing? You're like you know on a first name basis, you know, gr great, but like this sort of like familiarity and this assumption that everybody. You know, once this like super insidery thing and the shorthand that people talk in, I think is kind of silly. Somebody who actually I think did a good job last night articulating something on foreign policy was Tim Scott, who was actually explaining the case for U.S. engagement, you know, financially um, and in you know, weapon systems in Ukraine and articulated a why. And I think our politics misses, you know, on both sides becomes so much just this virtue signaling and I'm going to say the thing and it's going to make them mad. I'm going to own the cons. We're going to drink liberal tears. And he sounded like a grown up saying, look, you know, something that is going to weaken the Russian military is something that's in our strategic interest. I mean, yes, fantastic. Like, and we need more of that. It feels so much of this stuff now is just sort of pandering to whoever you think is part of your coalition. Instead of trying to explain stuff and educate and dare I say, lead mm -hmm. on these kind of things 
Well, um, look, I mean, this is the Burkean, you know, you you owe your you owe your voters, uh, you know, not just representation, but your judgment as well. Um, yeah. But I think that I think that to sound an opposite note from the both of you, um, I think that this the people on that stage who are speaking to this, um, with the exception of Vivek, but nobody takes them seriously, uh, all sounded pretty close to each other. And even if, you know, directionally there were differences and stylistically there were certainly differences, they sounded pretty close to each other in a way that I think if you're someone who comes from the perspective of liking Donald Trump and trusting him because he kept people out of wars, doesn't give you a lot of reason to support these people. Just in the sense that, is this a higher risk factor for getting sucked into something? But the flip side of that, is that a lot of those same people wouldn't care uh, uh, that if we get sucked into something related to Israel because they are absolutely firmly, completely on their side. And the latest polling data that I was just looking at this morning from a couple of different sources on this, uh, Democrats have a bigger problem than they think. It's almost a fourth of their party that doesn't think that what Israel is doing there is justified in any way, that like Israel just going into Gaza is not justified. Democrats have a huge problem on this. It's a it's it is a quarter of their party that is at odds with, you know, just with doing anything. There isn't a quarter of the Republican Party that's at odds with, you know, sending weapons to Ukraine. It just doesn't it, it's just not the case. You know, in fact, what they're at odds with is sending money, money to pay for the bureaucrats and things like that. You know, things that were pointed out on the debate stage, by the way, uh, you know, by people like DeSantis. But it's also something that I think is is going to be and continue to be. Um, a real issue that that these candidates are going to have to navigate. As I said before, I don't know, you know, if it was the week before October seventh. I feel like it was. I felt like this election was turning into a foreign policy primary. I still think that. I think that's going to continue. Um, one more thing before we move off, and I, we ended up having a lot more to say about the debate uh, than than I thought. And I want to get to the abortion question and to the and to the uh, uh, the off years uh, right after this. The Kim Reynolds endorsement. I thought that was very interesting. Uh, I think it's more important than people think. She has an 80 plus percent approval rating among Republican likely caucus voters in Iowa. Uh, the background polling says that her endorsement was actually going to be something that mattered the most of any endorsement for anybody. Um, and uh, Tony Fabrizio, obviously the head of the Trump super PAC, but also someone who is diametrically opposed to basically every social conservative on every issue under the sun uh, came out and said that it won't matter and nobody cares what she thinks. And that to me sounded like total wishful thinking. The fact that Kim Reynolds would come out and endorse at this late stage and say, I'm going to, you know, go on. She was on Iowa radio yesterday. She was, you know, acting as a DeSantis surrogate already incredibly popular politician with the caucus goers. Uh, and, you know, I think that basically DeSantis has decided I've burned the ships. I'm not getting out of this race. I'm not going to be Scott Walker. I'm going to I'm going to go to Iowa. I'm going to invest everything that I have there. I'm going to win. Uh, and then I'm going to and then I'm going to do my best to stay in after that. Uh, and I think that that's the calculation that he has to make at this point, frankly, because I don't think there's another option for him. And uh, it was interesting to me to see him echo basically everything Kim Reynolds said in her endorsement of him in his opening statement about Donald Trump talking about how he's a different person than he was in 2016, talking about how he failed to deliver on a number of different policies, talking about the fact that DeSantis believes that he can win and that Trump will lose. By the way, that was the top of Reynolds' announcement, like uh, her interviews. She was just hammering it. She was like, Donald Trump can't win. That's why I'm not backing him. And to me, that's just a, kind of an amazing thing that a, that a major popular Republican governor will come out and just say that at this late stage about a former president of her own party that she backed in 2020. That seems to me significant. And I think that, you know, if you want to disagree with me, fine. And I had a bunch of consultants uh, in the Trump adjacent camp emailing me and saying that I was wrong uh, when I said when I wrote that I thought it was significant. I, I just think I think it is. And I think it gives him, you know, uh, one more reason uh, to believe that DeSantis can potentially win Iowa. Yeah, Reynolds, Reynolds spent political capital at a high leverage moment on a matter of principle that she thought was good for the party and the country. And that's great and is to be commended. I'm more in the camp that it won't matter in the grand scheme of things, because even if DeSantis comes out and wins Iowa, which, by the way, one year ago today or even 
nine months ago or six months ago today was the assumption that he would win Iowa. Um, that not going to change things. Ted Cruz won Iowa, right? And then Ted Cruz won Iowa. Rick Santorum won Iowa. Mike Huckabee yeah. won Iowa. Like it's and, and everyone. Yeah. But in 2016, everyone took a side, took a you know side and relief. And then Trump turned around and curb stomped everybody in New Hampshire, and it was off to the races. So I don't think I don't think it's going to matter in the grand scheme of things. But it was heartening, and it shows you obviously that the the coalition is fractured, fractured more than it's been since. January 5th, I guess we'll call it, not to be melodramatic, is is fractured on the right. There is legitimate disagreement on the on on the right and in the Republican coalition. But but then again, you know, th- there was legitimate disagreement in 2016 and they all got on board. And when Trump rattles off a bunch of victories on Super Tuesday, Kim Reynolds is going to endorse it. So, but, you know, that's that's the reality from my point of view. Um, John, if, unless you have something to add, we can move on to the abortion question. And obviously that's something that, that Nikki Haley spoke to, um, uh, quite directly and, and said, Republicans need to be honest with their voters about this. She said that before, but you know, she talked a bit about finding consensus and we don't need to divide America over this issue anymore. My understanding is that Haley's position on this uh, personally, is essentially the same as Glenn Youngkin's, which obviously, you know, the, the national media is writing kind of went down to defeat. I have my own personal uh, views at odds with that. Um, but I'm curious what you think about that, that kind of uh, the language that she was using and whether you think that that it's something that helps her or whether it reads as kind of inauthentic consultant speak. You know, the... The idea of building consensus just in the space of abortion, I don't know. You don't talk about building consensus on guns or something like that. Well, you know, Donald Trump basically said the same thing, what, you know, three or four weeks ago. They was going to get everybody together yep. and, you know, it was going to be great. I, I think you're the best right. deal I, ever. Yeah. I don't think there's a consensus to be found. I think that there are people that have very, very different opinions that are irreconcilable uh, to some extent. Now, can you find a place where some people or a greater number of people are less upset? You know, maybe. Um, I think that Haley's positioning on this is probably, and I know I think that we probably disagree on this because I think we sort of disagree on kind of where, you know, tell me if I'm wrong, where the general election is going to be won and lost. And I think it's going to be with suburban voters. I think that, first of all, I think that what Haley is saying, setting aside the the consensus part, is just true. There aren't 60 Republican votes for a 15-week national abortion ban. Yeah, right. but 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 here's the problem with what I think she said. She, you know, she says, we need to be honest with our voters, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then she says, I'll sign whatever gets sent to me uh, from the Congress. But then she doesn't specify, okay, well, what what is your opinion about what the Congress should send you? Like that's the obvious like follow up question that I feel like she has not included in her answer both times. Yeah, but the unspoken premise of that answer, Ben, is that they're not is that I'm Congress right. I Nikki Haley am right, and they're not going to either not going to send anything or they're not going to send anything that would make me well, uncomfortable. Well, but this is this is the other thing that I think is is if you're going to be fully honest with people, I would just say this issue isn't going to be wiped away by the federal government. It's not. If I become president, what I'll do is reverse the policies that Joe Biden has put in place that violate Hyde, um, that are currently being, you know, uh, su- that he's going to be sued over, that is, you know, throwing our military uh, promotions into the cocked hat, thanks to uh, the work of of my now personal hero, Tommy Tuberville. Um, but also, it's one of these situations where it's like, the presidency doesn't matter when it comes to this anymore, except to the extent of appointing judges to maintain, you know, what the new status quo is. You guys all have to deal with this. The states have to deal with this. Governors have to deal with this. Everybody else, you know, you, all these state and local people who got away with avoiding this issue for so long, you have to deal with this. Uh, you know, I mean, you got to avoid it except on the margins. And now it's an unavoidable reality of your existence. And, you know, I think that what was so interesting about these off-year elections is that you saw two people who are really beloved by the national donor class in Glenn Youngkin and in Daniel Cameron. And I don't say that in any kind of animosity against them. I think they're both, you know, uh, talented politicians, though how much they've actually achieved, I think, is more of a question. But it's donors love those guys. And 
they and you know uh, obviously the position that that Youngkin had on the on a 15 week ban was something that was poll tested and that was you know popular to like you know 70 plus percent if you looked at Virginia uh, voters though not obviously all those people vote in weird off year elections uh, but then you know Cameron he basically spent the last month of his campaign dealing with this one campaign ad uh, from uh, a young woman who had been raped and uh, he never really found a way to deal with it he never really found the right messaging on it and uh, and that's something that i think speaks to the fact that like even if you are not a fire and brimstone person or a get on your knees teetotaler like our new speaker you have a problem with this issue and you can't just navigate it by being like well but i'm the moderate guy uh because yeah. those those people all lost the the key district in virginia that really was viewed as deciding the the you know the it ended up being you know the, the democrats have two more seats in the senate the key set senate seat that was viewed as deciding whether this would go one way or the other was if uh if a a woman who is an OBGYN who is viewed as moderate on the abortion issue who is an incumbent who uh you know is not just for 15 weeks but is also for every exception that you could list including abnormalities, including, you know, way beyond rape and incest, way beyond the life of the mother. She lost. Now, why did she lose? Because they expanded her district and gave her 17,000 more Biden voters in her district. They completely redistricted her into a one that was a, a coin flip seat to one that was that uh, heavily favored the Democrat. And then she lost by about 7,000 votes. So to me, it's kind of like a lot of people are going to extrapolate lessons from this. But the moderate position lost. I mean, that's that's the table. Well, I would ca I would have I think there's a million caveats. And I know we actually agree on this more than disagree. And I actually think the the odd year elections are probably maybe we'll have a slow week next week and we should dive into it at greater depth. But in short, I think for electorally in the future, the pro-life voter and the pro-life infrastructure, more importantly, do have a huge problem and how they deal with it is going to be massively consequential to the Republican coalition and the future of the country on an important and weighty moral issue. And that's basically, you kind of hinted at it. There is, I'll disagree with John. There is a consensus in America. 80% of Amer 70, 80% of Americans agree on some kind of limit on abortions, right? Some kind of limit, right? There, there is a consensus for some limit. The problem is structurally the pro <laughs> Roe did overturning Roe Dobbs did such a huge favor for the pro-choice crowd structurally, which is to say that they can organize these, these referenda in these states and the whole way that Ohio played out first in changing you know, the failure to change the threshold and then in the success of the referenda proved the playbook, which is to say they can organize these referenda and they can count on their activist voters to come out and pre preserve and protect the pro-choice position in these, in these off-year low turnout referenda. And we've we, we've talked offline and we will talk online at great length about how off year elections are now for Democrats, whereas for all of my youthful and adult life, they were for Republicans. And the pro-choice movement is going to benefit greatly from that. But notice that is a that, that there is a, a distinction to be made between where public opinion is on this issue and who votes in, in and, and what the structural mechanisms are in place to enshrine the pro-abortion position in law. So in, in short, and this is worth a much more thoughtful discussion to be sure, but in short, I think what's going to turn the issue one way or another is how much the pro-life movement is willing to adopt and accept gradualism. And if they can reorient their electoral operation, their persuasion operation um, to an to a, to a operation that's more about slowly moving back where the line is uh, where the popular sort of forward edge of the battle area is across I, I, the country. I, I, I agree with you entirely, Dan, but I want to give John a chance to respond to one little thing I would just point out that goes to your point is Glenn Youngkin didn't get hit from the right for embracing 15 weeks. They didn't go after him right. and say it needs to be 12, it needs to be six, et cetera. They were just like, yeah, 15 weeks, probably the best we can get from Virginia, you know, which is mm -hmm. the one state, by the way, in the South that that basically currently has no limit. Uh, you could say that they have a couple of limits after 26, but it's it's vague. Um, and, you know, but the point is just he was not getting hit from the right on that. He took 
from my perspective, basically the fir- the most moderate position that you could have, the one that tests well, the one that polls well, but then the electorate that he got in an off-year election after all that money got spent and Ronna McDaniel stood on the sideline and lied to our friends at the Ruthless program and said that the RNC can't give money to state-level parties, which is the most BS thing that I've ever heard come out of the mouth of any chairman of any RNC, and I've heard a lot of BS. <laughs> uh, you know, she the fact that the fact that she didn't give them another five million dollars in in October is probably the reason that Glenn Youngkin doesn't have basically two years of effective governance uh, ahead of him. That's my rant rant over. But John, I want to give you a chance to respond. Yeah, so I, I think that, and I think this is a point that Sean Trendy made well, who I think actually drew the maps or was part of the team that drew the maps for Virginia after the, the legislature and the governor couldn't agree, uh, is I, I think for as much as a lot of us, and I, and I love Yunkin, and I think he's great, and I think he would be a great national candidate for Republicans, though probably not as good of a primary candidate for Republicans, uh, though he did win you know, in, in Virginia's primary. Um, I think the important thing to remember, and I think our expectations probably got irrationally high because I think that Yunkin is an A-plus political talent is that Virginia is a purple to blue state. And uh, I know we were sharing these numbers the other day, but basically every, I think it was every legislative district that was Biden plus eight or better for Republicans, Republicans won. Um, So they did about what you'd expect them to do in the state. Uh, And it was, and And, and I just, uh, just to, to insert one more thing to that, Glenn Youngkin really like, I mean, he, he maxed this thing out. He, uh, you have 140 seats that are up. Okay. You have 10 people who've retired from the state Senate. You have enormous, you know, sort of challenges in the, in terms of this new map. Uh, And I mean, frankly, I think, you know, he, he came so close to, to achieving the kind of things that he wanted to do. And I really think that the fact that they got outspent by the amount that they did, and by the way, the amount is going to end up being a lot more because it doesn't factor in the late stage Planned Parenthood spending. I mean, look, you know, frankly, I think this was more important and more winnable than the Kentucky governorship. Andy Bashir was an established, popular, moderate tracking Democrat governor who had the luxury, frankly, of a GOP legislature that would block everything crazy that he signed. And I wish that like, this is this is you know Henry V. If not if but one ten thousand of the people who do no work today were here, you know, um, it, it just it, I I feel like if Republicans had focused more on Virginia, then they could have achieved a hell of a lot more, and instead, uh, and, and push back against this narrative that like abortion is some kind of just you know magic sauce because I think Cameron was going to lose anyway, regardless of the way that this tracked out. Um, but that's just me. Anyway, please continue, John. Yeah, I, I guess sort of the the last couple points is I think I think Yunkin oversaw a great he is what you want to see from a state level party leader, right? He's recruiting what seemed to be good, incredible candidates. He was trying to make sure they had resources. Though if you believe uh Semaphore's Dave Weigel, um Republicans were outspending until, you know, I guess the last few months where you know sort of the Democratic money guys realized, hey, this Yunkin guy might September. actually pull this off. Yeah. Right. Um you know, and we've we've seen this kind of stuff before, right? The sort of the late money come in. Actually, we saw it in Virginia, where you know um, Ed Gillespie almost upset Mark Warner because those guys didn't take it seriously enough until the last minute, and just you know brought in enough resources to you know s- you know save Warner's seat in the Senate. Um, I think on the I think on the abortion issue, it's it's tough. It's tough for Republicans. So even if you do have the moderate, I mean, I think it's the branding of the party as being the anti-abortion party. You know, whatever the individual, you know, position of any particular candidate or elected official, um, it's going to have that branding attached to it. The same way that, you know, Democrats, people, you you can make a charge that oh, they're tax and spend. And even if it's, you know, some you know budget hawk Democrat, you're still going to be able to kind of hang that around their neck. I don't know what the path out is for Republicans on this. Um, I, I think it's, I think it's a very challenging issue. I mean, and and again, I don't. It's got to be working to some degree because why else would Democrats keep throwing this in sort of the MAGA extremist? I mean, it, those are the two cards that they've been playing in one election after another. You know, MAGA extremist that wants to ban abortion doesn't matter where in the country it is. They've they've been doing that, but. 
Uh, it's a challenge for Republicans to figure out. Obviously, Trump kind of wants to run away from the issue. Um, but look, all, all credit to Glenn Youngkin. I think he he and his team and the Republican State Legislative Committee did a good job and early ballot and getting people out and all that kind of stuff. So I think there's lessons learned here and we'll see. Yeah. Well, I think we can spend some more time on this uh, next week, but obviously there's, there's a lot to talk about Uh, for Dan, for John, I'm Ben Dominich. I I hope that you will check out all of our different newsletters and everything else we have to offer at the spectator.com. This has been Thunderdome and we will be back next week to guide you more through this crazy 2024 election.